Hello, and welcome to This is Purdue, the official podcast for Purdue University. Our conversations and stories feature Boilermaker students, faculty, and alumni taking small steps toward their giant leaps and inspiring others to do the same. As the world's cradle of astronauts, Purdue is known around the world for preparing graduates to travel into space. But no one is more iconic of Purdue's astronaut training ground than the man to first set foot on the moon, Neil Armstrong, whose loss in 2012 was felt throughout the world, but especially deeply within the Purdue family. In this podcast segment, we hear first from fellow astronaut and Purdue alumnus Greg Harbaugh, and from Armstrong himself, along with Purdue leaders and other fellow astronauts. It's a warm Saturday afternoon in late August. Undergraduates stroll between monuments of red brick and mortar. The fountains are flowing. Campus is quiet. But beneath the archway off Stadium Avenue, onlookers begin to gather. They gaze and reflect and pay their respects at a monument that's become a memorial. I met Neil on multiple occasions when we both transited Purdue. There were times when they had all the Purdue astronauts back. My daughter was roughly two at that time and very animated and very friendly and social to everybody around. And she ended up climbing into Neil's lap. No idea who he was. He was just a kind gentleman sitting behind us. And he sat there very placidly holding on to her for you know, some period of time until we apologized and took her back. But he's just a very good man. Legend has it that you were at a Purdue football game and that might have had a little impact on you deciding to come here. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? I had picked good engineering schools uh, to consider and uh, Purdue was playing Ohio State at Ohio State, and I happened to be at that game. Purdue won. That made the decision for me. And so the story begins here. Hidden within this crowd of 73,000 fans, 15-year-old Neil Alden Armstrong, born and raised in Wapakoneta, Ohio, has discovered an engineering school. Armstrong's childhood brimmed with musical ingenuity. He could play the baritone, the trumpet, and piano. And then there were airplanes, model airplanes, that fueled his dreams of flight. Neil was on a program with the Navy. The only way he could afford to come to Purdue was on scholarship. The Navy paid his way. And the campus at that time, these were in the post-war era, uh, the campus is full of XGIs. But he came here to design airplanes. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to learn how to design airplanes and be an engineer. Already toting his pilot's license, Armstrong makes the most of his first two years at Purdue. He plays baritone for the Purdue All-American Marching Band while earning decent marks in one of the nation's most rigorous engineering programs. I remember aerodynamics class taught by uh, Professor Shanks. And the first day of class, he gave us an assignment, which happened to be Bernoulli's Law, and the assignment was to criticize. And it was right then that I realized they weren't teaching us facts and information he was teaching me how to think. He wasn't the, the number one student on campus, but he had good solid grades, a B student. January of uh, 49, they took him into active duty. 
When he came back from Korea, he was involved in a fraternity, uh, Phi Delta Theta, and in musicals done through his fraternity. Neil Armstrong, when he graduated here in 1955, did not have a goal of becoming the first person to walk on the moon. At that time, the word astronaut wasn't even commonly used in the English language. The time that I spent at Purdue learning engineering was absolutely critical to everything I've done throughout my entire career. His extensive flight experience, now coupled with a hard-earned engineering degree, Neil Armstrong quickly becomes one of the United States military's top test fighter pilots. And then... We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And do all this and do it right, and do it first before this decade is out. President Kennedy's declaration is unprecedented. Leaving Earth for a destination more than a quarter million miles away, if you scaled the Earth down to the size of a classroom globe, you'd find the moon some 30 feet away, fitting easily in the palm of your hand. According to his fellow military pilots, Armstrong's nerves are unshakable, exuding a quiet confidence and bravery. About 14 months before uh, Apollo 11 uh, lifted off, he had actually crashed a lunar module he was practicing on here on Earth. Uh, narrowly escaped his life, had to parachute out. And he was found later that day after a pretty dramatic uh, low-level ejection back in the office looking at the, the drawings, trying to understand what had gone wrong. And that, to me, is kind of an exemplification of what Neil did to do everything we could possibly do to consider every reasonable scenario and prepare for it. As commander of the crew of Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong, alongside fellow astronauts Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, climbs aboard the most powerful vehicle ever designed by humans, the Saturn V rocket. At 363 feet, it's taller than the Statue of Liberty and carries more than six million pounds of fuel. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. The Saturn V punches through the atmosphere at a speed of seven miles per second. As phase one and two break away, Apollo 11 escapes the Earth's gravitational hold, and with one final thrust, they begin their three-day journey to the moon. Neil felt the Apollo 11 mission would succeed um, up to getting to the moon, but at that point, it was a 50-50 chance. That was good enough for him. He felt those were pretty good odds. July 20th, 1969. While Michael Collins waits patiently inside the orbiting command module, Armstrong and Aldrin descend to the lunar surface. With fuel running dangerously low, Armstrong calmly navigates the lunar module, looking for an ideal spot to land. The final descent was indeed the most difficult part of the flight. The uh, automatic system had no way of knowing what was underneath it, and it would likely just stick one of its feet in a crater and tumble over, so we weren't gonna take that chance. You train yourself to concentrate on this, the task at hand, and you ignore your, your personal well-being if you can do that. I believe that they knew exactly how much fuel they had, they knew exactly how much time they had. They had put all of the odds in their favor. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. 
in my view, that, that was the critical uh, achievement of the Apollo program. I'm going to step off the land now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. For more than two hours, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin dance across the lunar surface before an estimated TV audience of nearly one billion people. Looking up at the uh, planet Earth was uh, certainly one of the very top highlights. It's a magnificent sight. You don't see the famines, you don't see the fighting, you don't see the illnesses. And it really makes you wish that you could take all the world's leaders into orbit and give them that perspective and hope that maybe that would change their minds and their attitudes. Armstrong and Aldrin leave behind numerous remnants, including the imprints of a few first steps. Free from the erosive forces of wind and rain, these are truly footprints for the ages, capable of surviving thousands, even millions of years. Retiring from NASA in 1971, Neil Armstrong remained a modest hero, happy to pause for a handshake or a photograph, but rarely granting interviews or autographs. By the time he assumed professorship at the University of Cincinnati, the first man to ever set foot on the moon could visit his favorite chili restaurant and hold the door open for fellow patrons who rarely recognized him. He never tried to benefit from it personally. He never tried to profit from it. He, he didn't go around on every TV show and, and talk about what it was like to land on the moon. He wouldn't talk about, I landed on the moon. He would talk about how it was a team. And he would talk about all the engineering that would go into the space missions. In the decades that followed, frequent visits to his alma mater offered opportunities to reunite with former classmates and former NASA colleagues. I do owe so much to this wonderful university. What other school would put a petrified student on a pedestal alongside an engineering building? Dale Purdue. But on this warm August Saturday, realization sets in. There will be no more campus visits, no more surprise halftime appearances or prestigious dedications. The world has lost an icon, and Purdue, its favorite son. The first man to walk on the moon. Neil he died today. The first man on the moon passed away Saturday. A true American icon, dead tonight at 82. People talked on this campus often about we had a chance to meet Neil Armstrong. It's like meeting Christopher Columbus. He focused on being very prepared. We're trying to implant a little bit of Neil in all of, all of our graduates. Warm human being, and he had this wonderful smile. What Neil has left as a legacy for us is just so powerful. Regardless the backdrop of Cold War politics, Neil Armstrong's fateful steps in July 1969 galvanized the United States during its most turbulent decade since the Civil War. 
Heroes were born. Imaginations captured. Starry-eyed schoolchildren found themselves drawn into science and mathematics. Widely published photographs, like this one, taken aboard Apollo 8, provided a new Earth-first perspective that permeated American society, culture, and politics. But by the end of the 1980s, as the Cold War came to a close, concern over NASA's diminishing budget began to surface. Neil was very, very concerned about the future of human spaceflight. In one of the few very public statements that he's made in recent years was when he and, and many of the other astronauts did make statements about continued space exploration. We've chosen collectively not to lead in space anymore, and I find that hugely disappointing. There's one thing I know that uh, in my heart that he would advocate, and that is we should continue to explore. Look how many astronauts have gone through this university. Does that say something for our capability? And that's the key. We got to re-inspire kids to dream. There are places at Purdue where you can still feel Neil Armstrong's presence. Game days at Ross-Aid Stadium, the Phi Delta Theta House, and the Special Collections Archive that houses many of his course books and personal papers. Archivist Tracy Grimm oversees this wide-ranging collection of historic 20th century documents. Neil very much was interested in making sure that his papers were available to students so that students could use them for research. He studied hard for everything, and we see that in the papers. You'll see papers from all over the world congratulating him. That is a, is a really interesting aspect of his papers as well because it captures how the world felt, what it meant to the world. But nowhere is the legacy of Neil Armstrong more palpably felt than inside the Hall of Engineering that bears his name. You stroll through its soaring atrium and peek into its bustling laboratories. And you can't help but wonder, even hope, that somewhere within these halls is that special someone who will take our next giant leap. Purdue University has a long and storied connection with aviation, educating pilots, aeronautical engineering, and, of course, astronauts. In 1930, Purdue was the first American university to open its own airport. Just four years later, Purdue hired one of the most famous pilots in the world. Amelia Earhart was the most famous career woman of her time. She was a beacon of hope, not only to women, but to everyone because of the times. Amelia Earhart was a comet that shot across the sky in the 1930s and then just disappeared. Amelia Earhart was known around the world for the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. Now, she flew as a passenger. She didn't pilot that aircraft. But later, in 1932, she became the first woman to actually fly solo across the Atlantic. Her fame just shot to the sky. She was just world famous because this woman had done this thing that they didn't think any woman could do 
and uh, apparently very few men could do. She was an accomplished flyer racer, and she spoke quite a bit around the country about women and how they could have careers and they could be just as accomplished as a man could be. So before the war, Purdue was built to hold a maximum of 7,000 people. 6,000 students and 800 women. So it was like this little nucleus of women. Edward Elliott was the president of the university from 1921 until 1946. Elliott was talking a lot at that time about the problem of education for women's students. Most were in home economics because that was what was offered to women. When they got a college degree, they left Purdue and got married. In the 1930s, in the first part of the century, it wasn't common for women to work outside of the home. President Edward Elliott met Amelia in New York at a Women and the Changing World conference. Amelia was a speaker. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. And he heard her talk about women and women's careers and the potential that women had. He was intrigued. He got to talk to Amelia more, and they were on the same wavelength. They wanted to help women find themselves to find careers that they could do with their college education. I think that President Elliott saw in Amelia Earhart that she could be a role model for the women who were studying at Purdue. Elliott said, we would love to have you at Purdue, and she said she would like that. What should I do? And what he proposed was that she would become an advisor to our program in aeronautics, and she would become a career counselor for women students on the Purdue campus. She accepted the position in the fall of 1935. Amelia Earhart came to our campus. She would stay here for about two weeks at a time. She lived in Doomy Hall. And it was Dorothy Stratton's idea that she stay there. Dorothy was the dean of women. She thought the easiest way, the best way, for Amelia to really get to know the women students was to live in the residence hall. Living with the students gave them an opportunity to interact with her and to, to eat dinner with her. A woman resident said Amelia came to her door and popped her head around the corner and said, can I borrow your pencil and, and I'll bring it back in a sec. And she went back to her room, came back, and the room was full of young women who were sitting there waiting for her to come back. And she got the hint and she started talking to them. And she would look at one and say, you, you're a sophomore, aren't you? And I know you're dating a senior in engineering. He's going to graduate in June. And what's going to happen then? He's going to ask you to marry him. He's going to want you to leave campus with him. Don't do it. Stay here. Get your education. Find out about yourself. This was a whole new experience for this woman. They weren't getting this kind of talk anyplace. So she would meet with the women students, talk to them about their aspirations. One of the documents that we have in the archives is a questionnaire that she gave to the women students. With different questions about what women thought they would be doing after college and what kinds of work and why they would want to work. And she was surprised by some of the answers because they really wanted to work because it was what they wanted to do, they said. Me Earhart claimed that she was the first counselor on careers for women students at any university in the country, and I believe she was. The other thing about Amelia is that she wore slacks. Purdue was very formal at that time, and the, the women students all had to wear dresses. It's very hard to get in an airplane in those days in, in a skirt because you had to climb into it. So when she came into the dining hall still dressed in what she wore to fly, they thought, well, why can't we do that? And they were told, well, when you fly across the Atlantic, you can do the same thing. When Amelia Earhart was on campus, she was a celebrity, so students were, you know, over the moon about her. The women students were. Some of the male students thought it was tough enough to find dates, and so they didn't want her saying, oh, you know, don't worry about getting married or, you know, finding someone right away, go out and get a job. 
Elliot really loved Earhart. He was just captivated by her. He said, you know, what else do you want to do? And she said, well, I'd like to do what she called one more adventure. I'd like to fly around the globe at the equator. And he said, maybe I can help you do that. And the Purdue Research Foundation helped raise the money and gave them a grant to purchase the Lockheed Electra. Dorothy Stratton, Dina Women, brought all the women to see it at Purdue's airport. There are some really neat pictures of all the women beaming with pride. She's our Amelia. The plane was a Lockheed Electra, and it was called the Flying Laboratory. Her fly was to be partly research, not just spectacle. She was going to do scientific experiments on long-duration flights. Amelia Earhart and her crew at Oakland, California, ready for her great aerial adventure around the world flight by way of the equator, a journey no pirate has yet attempted. The world flight started first in March of 1937 from Oakland, and from there they were flying to Honolulu, and then from there they would fly to Holland Island. She had an accident trying to take off from the airport in Honolulu, damaged the plane. So that first leg was scrapped. President Elliott sent a telegram to her of encouragement after that happened. You are commissioned and charged to give A.E. a special Purdue greeting when she lands today. Her courageous exploits have given a thrill to every member of the Boilermakers Guild. They are all with her to the successful end of the flight. So in May of 1937, the second attempt was initiated. The weather conditions had changed, so she decided to fly east. Through the month of, of June, she flew around the world, things went pretty well. So at each stop, she would take photographs of the people at the airports, the local inhabitants, some of the landscapes. Amelia kept a journal along the way. Her and her husband had plans to publish a book about the flight. And so what's really interesting is that every stop along the way, she would send her pages back to him. So we have the, the journal pages from each leg of the flight describing what the experiences were like on that flight. Rain clouds hung around Carapito this morning as we left. We flew low over jungle, most way to coast, then played hide-and-seek with showers until decided I'd better forego watching scenery and climb up on top, 8,000 feet topped all but highest clouds. By the time they got to Lay, they had completed about 22,000 miles, so they were almost finished with the trip. The island they were going to land on before Hawaii, this little Howland Island, was a teardrop in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Very, very small thing. We're talking, you know, a mile wide, two miles long. A speck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So at that time in the 1930s, with the technology of navigation, it was extremely difficult to find. Her navigator, Fred Noonan, was using some of the same techniques that Columbus did when he crossed the ocean. He was navigating by stars. He was dropping things out of the plane to check wind direction and wind speed. They left for Holland Island on July 1st. It was a beautiful, clear day. The Coast Guard was waiting at that island. They couldn't see her in the sky. The Coast Guard cutters had some communications from them via the radio. And they could hear her, but she could not hear them. One of the last things that they heard was that they were tacking north and south, trying to find the island. But they never landed. Something happened. And, you know, the exact reasons for all this, we don't know. 
Her legacy is one of the most famous people to disappear, and we don't know what happened to her. But really, she was such a strong proponent of women's rights and women's ability to have careers, to, to have a job and a family. One of the things that I research is the way that specific women become iconic feminists for their time. The Amelia Earhart Faculty in Residence program is brand new in a way, but in another way, it started uh, in the 1930s with Amelia Earhart. So the idea of embedding a faculty person in the residence hall is to bring more of the students' personal lives into view for the faculty. That's something that I think that I have really benefited from. We have been living there since early August. I have a seven-year-old and a partner who is a historian. We are making our family life in the residence hall with five or six hundred Windsor residents. Taking on the position was very intriguing on both a scholarly level as well as, you know, from sort of the heart of an educator. And what I'm really interested in is how Amelia Earhart is imagined as this role model. The George Palmer Putnam collection of Amelia Earhart papers is housed at the Purdue Archives and Special Collections. We have over 5,500 items. To mark the 80th anniversary of Amelia's disappearance, we held an exhibit. The exhibit was kind of interesting because we showcased the items that Amelia and Fred sent back during the trip. So it kind of presented the last flight through their eyes. To think about that the items were actually on that last flight is one of the sort of wondrous things about an archive or special collections because you really can connect with history with a tangible object and you can imagine that object has a life and where it was. Sometimes in order to teach people, you have to inspire them first. And when Amelia Earhart would go in and talk to a class about flight, she'd done it and she was successful in inspiring him. She stood as an example of someone who believed in herself and who knew that one's abilities really mattered most. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. I think Amelia's impact is still felt, but maybe we need to listen to it again. The, some of the same verbiage that Amelia said back then, oh, women, you can be scientists and you can be engineers and you can be anything you want. I think the legacy is that we need to keep listening to what she said because we're not there yet. May I hope this movement will spread throughout all branches of applied science and industry and that women may come to share with men the joy of doing those can appreciate rewards most who have helped create. Today, Amelia Earhart's prized memorabilia is proudly preserved and displayed by Purdue Libraries. Her husband, George Palmer Putnam, donated the memorabilia to Purdue, he said, because of Amelia's love of the university. Thanks for listening to This is Purdue. For more information on this episode, visit our website at purdue.edu slash podcast. There, you can route to your favorite podcast app to subscribe and leave a review. As always, boiler up.